Back when Apollo 15 landed on the moon, they did a very interesting experiment. It's fascinating. I saw a YouTube video uh, about this the other day. Let me ask you, if you have a hammer, let's say, I don't know how much do hammers weigh? Let's say it weighs a couple of pounds, right? You got a feather, and you let go of them from the same height at the same time, which one will hit the ground first? Uh, so we have a very smart cheater out there. So yeah, if, but how will it work? Which one will hit the ground first? The hammer, the hammer right? Why is that? Don't answer, Willie. <laughs> Why is that? So on Apollo 15, they took with them a hammer and a feather. And they got out on the moon, and they let go of them at the same time. And Willie, when did they hit the ground? At the same time or differently? Well, they did. There is gravity on the moon. So Willie knows the first question, not the second question. I'm sorry I put you in that situation, <laughs> Willie. I'm there every day. Yeah. <laughs> If you, when they drop the hammer, you can see this. There's video evidence. If you drop a hammer and a feather on the moon at the same time, they will drop at the same rate and hit the, the moon's surface at the same time. It's really cool because my brain is thinking that feather needs to go slower, right? Now, how does the feather fall? Remember, you make the motion with your hands, right? Like this, right? Falls like this. Because why? Because there's air. Is there air on the moon? No. So what we're seeing at play is actually an underlying law of physics that's obscured on the Earth because of our atmosphere. And we're very grateful for our atmosphere, by the way. But it is clear on the moon where there's no atmosphere. Two objects, no matter how much they weigh, will always fall at the same rate. The problem is, since we have air resistance, right, we have an atmosphere, things have a different aerodynamic value. That's why a Prius is shaped like it belongs in outer space and why a truck is shaped like a brick, right? You can actually find this out. The new F-150 Lightning, the, the electric truck that Ford released, it's still shaped like a brick, which is why it doesn't go very far in an electric charge. That's why those Teslas, you've seen them, they're, even their door handles are like inside the door. It took me a while. One of my friends uh, in the Seattle area got a Tesla, and I walked up to it. It's like, I don't even know how to get into this thing. Like, where is the door? You have to like press it and pop it out. It's way crazy. But it's, it's the wind resistance that makes the difference. Is that a surprising truth to anyone here this morning? Oh, come on. I'm not the only one who didn't know that, am I? <laughs> yeah, it's... But isn't that the case? Isn't the truth sometimes surprising? You say, wow, I didn't know it was like that. Of course, that's the good response, isn't it? What we have is the bad response in our passage in Acts. And by the way, we're actually going to go through several different passages here. We're going to start in verse 17. We're not going to end until well into verse 22. I just didn't want to have to uh, read. I didn't want to have Elaine have to read that long this morning. But Paul has come back to Jerusalem from going out into Asia, which we know Roman Asia is actually just a portion of Turkey, from going all throughout what's modern-day Turkey, from going all throughout modern-day Greece. And now he heads back to Jerusalem. And he's been telling people about Jesus. He's been telling people it doesn't matter who you are and it doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus can take care of you. He can change your life. And he can give you an eternal, wonderful future. 
He was taking this message. And part of what happens is he goes between different people groups, doesn't he? He's a Jew. Paul grew up as a Jew. He is a Jew. And the Jews have their Jewish law. And we know some of that even today, right? If you go to Jerusalem and you order a bacon cheeseburger, you will be asked to leave and probably not very politely, right? Because of the dietary laws. And we say that with this law, there are some things that have a, a moral or an ethical component, right? Think of the Ten Commandments, do not murder. Is that, is that about morality or is that about just a custom or a cultural sort of idea? Yeah, it's, it's an ethic. It has to do with what's right and wrong. But then there are other things like the Jewish dietary laws. And Paul had been telling the Gentiles, you don't have to follow these dietary laws because they're not an ethical, they're not a moral law. They're part of the Jewish ceremonial law that tells us how we as a people are clean before God, ritually pure. Now, when you get ready to come to church in the morning, just to give you a little sense of what this might be about, you probably don't just walk into your closet and throw on whatever you see first. You don't go into your dirty clothes hamper, right, and go, eh, this is good enough for church this morning, right? You probably give at least a little bit of thought to what you wear. Even if you're dressed very casually, you probably gave at least a little bit of thought to what you were going to wear. Is that a moral rule, or does that have more to do with custom for us. It's more to do with custom. And now I know maybe not all of us are really comfortable with that. I've had some long conversations with folks in the past who are like, if you come to church in jeans, you're going to hell. And I'm like, well, no, pretty sure that's not in the Bible. You know, I think we'll be okay. It's all right. But yeah, we, we have these sorts of customs too, things you do or don't do. We stand up at certain parts of the service and sit down at certain parts of the service. You know, there are certain, even certain parts of our language, right? There are words that we say and that we don't say. Maybe words we don't say in church and, and do say out in the wider world. I'm always a little confused about that, right? Because we know that God's not locked in the church when we leave, right? He hears all of our words everywhere that we go. But Paul is saying this incredibly innovative and scary thing for the Jews, which is that if you are a Gentile and you want to know the real, the one true God, have you heard everything we've been saying about truth this morning? If you want to know the one true God, it's not about what you eat. It's not about what you wear. It's about what God has done for you and how he is calling you to himself, and you just need to respond in faith. And that blew people's minds in Paul's community and around the world. And that's why when Paul comes back to Jerusalem, right, he's been doing all this missionary work, he comes back to Jerusalem, and the majority of people in Jerusalem are Jews, and the majority of Christians in Jerusalem are Jews, and he comes to the church in Jerusalem, and he says, this is, we've had this amazing success telling people about Jesus in the Gentile world. And his fellow Christians in Jerusalem praise God with him. They say, what a wonderful thing. We're so excited. This is so good. But they said, you know, Paul, you need to be aware that this Gentile's not having to follow the Jewish more, uh, custom you know, law, the Jewish ritual purity laws. That's really tough for some of the people in our church. They're having a hard time, having a hard time giving those things up. Uh, Thanksgiving's coming up, right? What are some of your Thanksgiving traditions? Anyone got them? 
Turkey, right? That's a great one. We're just going to go with that one, as a matter of fact. Turkey. There is a turkey shortage this year, right? Did anyone hear this? And uh, if you go to the stores, like I, I, I already bought my turkey. I don't know about you. I already bought my turkey. But man, there weren't a lot of them out. They're, usually they're just covered in turkeys everywhere. So I sent out a, a message to my family group earlier. And I said, you know, there's supposed to be a turkey shortage this year. Do we want, is it important to have turkey or, or not? Can we have something else? And I, I made some suggestions just in case you know, we couldn't find a turkey or anything like that. And what, what answer do you think I got? Turkey! <laughs> Who do you think you are? We eat turkey on Thanksgiving. Of course, right? Now, that's kind of a silly thing, right? I mean, not to some people, but to some of you, know, we know it's kind of a silly thing. But those sorts of things happen in our churches too, don't they? We find things and we say those are Thanksgiving turkeys. And no one better change it. And no one better mess with it. What are some of the things in our church that might seem sort of, they're kind of Thanksgiving turkeys? We love them. They're significant to us. But you know what? God doesn't say you have to do it that way. Church pews. Church pews. That's true. Did you know that you can sit in seating other than pews in churches? It is true. God won't love you less. But what are some other things that are Thanksgiving turkeys in our church? Like the music. Yeah, some of the music that we sing. Right? And some of the music that we don't sing. Having church in a building. Yeah, that's great. Like we said, we don't lock the building and say, okay, God, you stay there. He's actually everywhere, right? Church does not mean building. Order of worship. Order of worship, absolutely. So and you're, you're touching on something significant to me here because uh, I've had people every once in a while say, you know, my church isn't, isn't liturgical like your church. I say, yes, it is. That word liturgy just means the stuff that we do. And you have, this, you have stuff that you do every week at your church, right? You start, you, like, you sing like three songs, you go like this. That's all part of your liturgy. What you mean is you don't have a liturgy like ours. But absolutely, order of worship. That is the Thanksgiving turkey. And church belonging to all that come. What's that? The church belonging to all that come, not just the few. Well, and that's not a Thanksgiving turkey. That is true, and that's something we don't compromise on, right? The church uh, belongs to Jesus Christ, but all of God's people are equally invited. There's no one in this church, not the pastor, not the elders, not the people who give the most, or the people who give the least, or the people who volunteer the most, who have the right to say, I am the most qualified for this reason or another, and we will do things my without regard to anyone else. Right? Doesn't mean we don't have leadership, but it does mean we have leadership that's qualified by certain things. Okay, those are good. We're going to move on. Why do I bring this up? Well, like I said, remember Paul is coming, and there are these, these wonderful fellow believers in Jerusalem, that, and they really have friendship. They really have a relationship through Jesus Christ with each other. But there are some Thanksgiving turkeys. And one of them is, well, do we have to eat like Jews or not? And do you remember, you know, we've, we've been several places with Paul, and Paul's been really clear. You know, you don't, if you're Gentiles, you don't have to become Jews. You don't have to keep the whole Jewish law, 
They keep, keep the moral law, but the ceremonial law, well, that was God's people. That was for the Jews. You're not Jews. That's okay. You don't have to, to keep the dietary laws and do all of these different things. But for some people, that was really difficult to swallow. And we, can, we know exactly why. It was Thanksgiving turkey. It's a big change. And so James and the other leaders of the church in Jerusalem said, Paul, we need your help. We need your help. We need you uh, because some of our church members have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses. You tell people not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. They will hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. And I think this is a meeting of the minds. It's not James just being like, if you want to be here, this is what you have to do. But it's James saying, let's partner on this. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. They probably have taken a Nazarite vow. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. He says, we haven't forgotten the Gentile believers. We, we're just going to keep asking them to do the same thing, which is don't eat food sacrificed to idols, don't eat blood, don't uh, eat from the meat of strangled animals, which were probably used in cultic worship, and uh, don't engage in sexual immorality. And some of these things, actually, uh, John Stott in his commentary here says these are probably actually all customs issues. That sexual immorality bit's tough because the Bible, New Testament says all throughout, don't commit sexual immorality, which is a blanket term for a lot of different things. But most likely they're talking about things related to temple worship. Because I don't know if you know this, but in the ancient world, some of the temples had prostitutes that were part of your worship at that temple. So stay away. I heard someone suck in their breath at that. Yeah, that's weird, isn't it? They're saying... What we want you Gentiles to do is just live in such a way that the Jews will, you, the Jewish Christians will be comfortable associating with you. Don't take away all their Thanksgiving turkeys all at once. Let's grow into that. And Paul, of course, says, absolutely, I'm all about bringing Jewish and Gentile Christians together in fellowship. So Paul says, I'm going to take that vow with them. He pays for these guys to go through with their vow. And as he's going through this, on the last day, some Jews from the province of Asia, where Paul had been doing his ministry, and you remember, people had been rioting in Asia over the things that Paul was teaching and saying. And so some of these people had come on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, just like Paul. They see Paul, and they say, men of Israel, or fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Uh, Greeks or Gentiles can only go so far into the temple, only into the outer court of the Gentiles, which, by the way, remember when Jesus made the whip out of cords and drove the people buying and selling out of the temple? He drove them out of the court of the Gentiles. And so Jesus was not just saying, hey, there's some problems in the temple. He was saying, why are you excluding the Gentiles? Pretty neat, huh? I don't know about you. I'm a Gentile, so I'm pretty excited about that. <laughs> So they form a mob, and they get Paul, and they just start beating the snot out of him. What's happening? Well, like we've said, the truth is sometimes surprising, isn't it? We have to be equipped to actually hear it, understand it, and obey it. So if we are, want to be people who tell the truth, first of all, 
which we need to be if we are followers of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, tell everyone about me. And he said, I am the truth. So we have to be truth tellers, don't we? For truth tellers, we need to remember that we need to be willing to contextualize the message of the gospel for the sake of our fellow believers and even for the sake of the people outside the church. So what does that mean? All those Thanksgiving turkeys, if they're getting in the way of our fellowship with each other, getting in the way of telling people about Jesus, we need to be willing to give them up. Notice what I said, the Thanksgiving turkeys, not the truth about Jesus. If our building gets in the way of fellowship with each other, telling people about Jesus, the example Paul is setting for us is you need to give that up. Because the building is way less important than your fellowship, way less important than the mission of the gospel. Think about all those Thanksgiving turkeys we were talking about. All those things that we want to hold on to, but frankly, we could still have Thanksgiving even without them. Because it's Thanksgiving, right? Not turkey giving. If we want to be truth tellers, we need to be willing to give up our turkeys for the sake of the people around us. For truth hearers, we need to beware judging based on preconceptions. Okay, so this is going to go two directions. Because sometimes we need to hear the truth too, don't we? I mean, not only are we commissioned to go out and tell people about Jesus who is the truth, we gather together to hear the truth about Jesus who is the truth. So we need to be careful that the judgments we make are not based on our preconceptions. See, listen to what the, uh, the mob says, right? They say, uh, Paul teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place. Is that what Paul was teaching? No. No, Paul was actually saying that, I love the temple, but Jesus has come and he is even the greater temple. Did Paul say tear down the temple? No. Did Paul say don't worship at the temple? Paul is worshiping at the temple. Paul is simply saying don't miss Jesus because of the temple. What if the temple has become a turkey for you? Beware of our preconceived notions and our unwillingness sometimes to hear the truth because it's surprising, because a hammer and a feather fall to the moon's surface at the same speed. We never thought that could happen, except for Willie. He knew. But here's the other thing. See, when we start... Judging, making judgments about truth based on our preconceptions, we're not only going to make errors in those areas, we're going to be vulnerable to areas in other areas too. Because what, what, did, what did they say? They said, well, he's teaching every, they misunderstood Paul's teaching and they mischaracterized it. But then they did this as well. He said, he's brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Because they'd seen Paul going around with Trophimus, the Ephesian, who was a Gentile, a Greek, and they just assumed they like, we know what kind of guy Paul is. He's teaching against God and the temple and all these things. So, of course, he brought. We didn't actually see it, but of course, he brought Gentiles into the temple. What wouldn't Paul do? Hey, do any of us do this at any point? Did, any, did we hear a lot of this at any point over, say, like the last month or two leading up to Tuesday? It's so easy to hear only what we want to hear, and then to move 
out of that into making up further stories about people's atrocities. I think uh, I heard, I, I don't, uh, I heard that, was it through Joe Rogan's show that people said there were furries at schools and schools were setting out litter boxes for kids who were dressing up as animals or something like this. And, and this made it all the way through the, the media, right? Everyone's talking about this. It, by, you, can, you can pick your conspiracy, by the way, it can come from the left or the right. We all do this. And Joe Rogan came out earlier this week and said, yeah, I, that, that didn't happen. I think he was joking on his podcast, and the joke just kind of took off. Isn't that crazy? We'll believe wild things, won't we? Everyone, this is part of being human, will believe wild things. Because it's convenient. For truth tellers, we need to remember Hey, if our turkeys get in the way of the truth, get rid of the turkeys, not the truth. For truth hearers, we need to remember, hey, there are turkeys all over the place that I want to believe. And I need to be careful. I need to be careful. And finally, we need to recognize that sometimes when we go and we tell people the truth, uh, they're going to make up turkeys, aren't they? Paul never said he was against the temple, he was against the law. But nonetheless, that's what his opponents said. So don't be surprised. Be prepared, as a matter of fact. I'm not trying to be cynical like all oh, those jerks out there. Remember I said we all do this. But I am trying to say, hey, when we get to a point where we've been misunderstood, recognize, yeah, that was always going to happen to a greater or lesser degree. Be prepared. Now, Paul has been accosted by the crowd. They're beating the snot out of him. And the commander of uh, the, the Roman barracks nearby uh, came up and he, he saw uh, Paul getting beat up. So the soldiers stopped the mob and everything that was happening. He arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And then he asked who he was and what he had done. Uh, this would be on the evening news for us, wouldn't it? Like, oh, that guy's getting beat up. Let's put handcuffs on him and take him out. But whatever the case, this was the, way, the Roman way of keeping the peace. And it worked, at least for this moment. And he said, what's happening here? And some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. I'm sure the commander's thinking, what has this guy done? This is incredible. He's probably a Giants fan in L.A. or something like that. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek, he replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Now, I don't know where this guy draws this conclusion from, but isn't that just you know, continuing to illustrate whatever turkeys we got, we're going to judge based on those. Paul answered, well, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. And I don't know why this commander does this, but he says, okay. You know, maybe he looks out and he says, it can't possibly get any worse than it already is. Maybe this guy can calm him down. So after receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. And when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. He spoke to them in their own language. 
not Greek or something else. Uh, Some manuscripts actually say he spoke to them in Hebrew, which on the one hand would probably make him pay even more attention. On the other hand, was less likely because most, not everyone spoke Hebrew in Jerusalem. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. And Paul tells a story. He says, I was born uh, a Jew. You know, I'm born a Jew. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but I was brought up in Jerusalem. I learned under the most famous Pharisee of our day, Gamaliel. And I was thoroughly trained in the law, and I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I've been where you are. I persecuted the followers of this way. I've persecuted the Christians to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. This is not, it didn't happen in a corner somewhere. Everyone knows that this is true. I was on my way to Damascus. Now I'm summarizing. I was on my way to Damascus to kill some more Christians. Jesus appeared to me on the road. He changed my life. I was blind after meeting Jesus on the road. He sent a Christian to me who healed me, and now I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And he's given me the job of sharing the gospel, the good news of who he is and what he's done with the Gentiles. And then the crowd that was listening to Paul, when he said this, they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. I love verse 23. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks, right, they're so angry, like their bodies are just going out of control. And they're throwing dust up in the air. Like I, I can't even imagine the scene. This poor Roman commander, right? He's like, I'm going to come out. I, you know, I arrested this guy, which at least saves him from the crowd. You know, he's not who I thought he was. And I thought maybe he can calm down the crowd. Things surely can't get worse. Now he's got people throwing their clothes off and you know, tossing dust in the air. And they're ready to storm the gates just about. What is happening? Well, for truth tellers, first of all, Paul seeks to show as much common ground as he possibly can without compromising the truth. Get that? I'm just like you. I grew up in Jerusalem. I was trained by the very most zealous Pharisee that there was. He's famous. You know who he was. You even know who I am because you know I went out just like you are today and persecuted the Christians. But God changed my life. Now he knows what's the flashpoint, right? He knows it's the mission to the Gentiles, but he he still tells them that, doesn't he? He doesn't say, well, we'll come back to that later. Like that seems kind of like a divisive issue. No, Paul says, this is key. If I compromise on this part that the gospel is for everyone, no matter where they were born, no matter what law they followed, then I'm giving up the game. He finds common ground, but he doesn't compromise the truth. Now, obviously, it doesn't work, does it? And are we surprised? Man. Figuring out the truth in community is hard. Oh, that's part of the reason why our communities and our country are so polarized these days. We're coming at things from entirely different places. We're, we have entirely different stories sometimes that we're telling about the world so that when we start talking to each other about issues, we're not even speaking the same language anymore. 
We need, if we want to communicate with each other, and this isn't just about sharing our faith as Christians. This is about anything. We need to start by finding common ground. I don't care what the issue is. Hey, it, you know, maybe a great example of this is we live in a society where there are a lot of broken families. Some of our families here in this church are broken. And first of all, I want to tell you that I, God loves us all just as much, whether our family is broken or whole. And I should, you know, I don't even want to make that distinction because all of our families are broken because they got broken people in them. But think about divorced parents trying to care for a son or a daughter. Man, that is so hard because we're not on the same page. That's the nature of divorce. We know if we want to live in the truth and tell the truth, we have to find as much common ground with each other as we possibly can. That's the only place the conversation can start. For truth hearers, we've got to beware our own prejudices. Because that's what's nakedly coming out here now, isn't it? These people who want to kill Paul, why do they want to get rid of Paul? Because he's going to the people they hate. He's going to the people who are garrisoning the barracks just down the road and oppressing them. And he's saying, God loves you as well. It's their prejudice that makes them unable to hear the truth. Folks, does prejudice blind us to the truth? Yeah. Racism blinds us to the truth about each other, doesn't it? Intellectual prejudice. I'm smart and you're dumb, which sometimes all that we need to know about people is which letter do they vote for each year, right? Smart, dumb, I got prejudice. It's just not true. You know, the smartest people in the world can believe the dumbest things, can't they? And the dumbest people in the world can sometimes show their wisdom in how they live. Prejudice will always blind us to the truth. So for us, we need to recognize that the world is not a neutral place where people aren't prejudiced. But we also need to recognize that we are subject to prejudice as well. And is our prejudice preventing us from hearing the truth? What might that look like? Third, uh, the next scene, the Romans discover Paul's Roman citizenship. This is an interesting scene. So, uh, you know, now everyone is even angrier than they were at first. And the uh, Roman commander's like, well, that didn't work at all. He takes Paul back into the, the barracks and he says, let's beat the snot out of him some more so we can figure out what's going on. And as they're stretching Paul out to beat him up, Paul says, do you normally beat up Roman citizens? And the guy, the centurion who's about to start the beating, ran off to the commander and said, did you know this guy was a Roman citizen? Because if we lay a hand on him, we could all be dead. And the guy's like, oh, no, right? This is bad because it doesn't matter how high-ranking you are. If you uh, violate the rights of a Roman citizen, you're, that could be it for you, not just for your career, but for your life. So the commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. And the commander said, basically, how could that be true? I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. I am the commander of all the Romans in Jerusalem, and I had to buy it at great cost. You are, I don't even know who you are. How could you possibly be a Roman citizen? He said, I was born that way. 
Now, I, I don't know exactly why the commander decides that's a satisfying answer. But it says, though, maybe it was just the risk. If he really is a Roman citizen, you know, we're in trouble. So those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. And the commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he'd put Paul, a Roman citizen, even in chains. If we are truth tellers today, hey, take advantage of the truth, right? Paul wasn't getting stretched out thinking like, I'm so excited, I'm about to suffer for Jesus when I could stop this any second by telling them that I'm a Roman citizen. He said, no, hey, let me tell you the truth. I'm a Roman citizen, and that doesn't bode well for you if you lay a finger on me. And for truth hearers, it reminds us to carefully seek out and establish the truth, doesn't it? What's the mistake that the Roman commander made? He assumed, and then he didn't follow up and ask. Does anyone ever do that in their lives? You just assume you know what's going on. When I was a, when I was a banker, uh, I managed a branch, and I had an employee uh, who was relatively new, and a couple of times a week, he was coming in 15 or so minutes late. And the branch wasn't open yet, so it, we kind of got along fine, but it, you know, it kept happening. And it was really, it was driving me crazy because the rest of us can show up on time. And you know, my mom taught me, if you're not on time, you know, if you're not early, you're late. So it's like, it's, it's a pet peeve. So I, I call up one of our HR people, like, I got this guy, he's coming in late constantly. And I just, I got to discipline this guy. What are we going to do? She said, well, before you do that, why don't you ask him why he's late? I thought, mm. you know, sounds like a waste of time, but I'll try. So I, <laughs> I go and I ask this guy, hey, I noticed that Maybe a couple of times a week, you're coming in 15 or so minutes late. He said, well, my wife and I have been trying to get pregnant for a couple of years, and we haven't been able to. So I have appointments with a fertility doctor, you know, to do all these different things, and, and, uh, and I've been trying to schedule them outside of business hours so that it didn't interfere with our work. I thought, wow, I'm really glad I asked, because he's trying his best to do this right by his family and to do it right by his work. And so he said, okay, well, we still need to be on time, but I appreciate what you're doing. If you're going to be late, just call me and we'll figure out how to make that work by the end of the week. Just let me know in case I need you for something. But that's important too and I want, I want you to get it done. Carefully seek out and establish the truth because, oh, we assume that we know it and we are wrong so often. Finally, uh, for our passage this week, the Roman commander is still trying to figure out why are these people so angry? They're throwing off their clothes and throwing dust in the air and they want to kill this guy. So the next day, uh, he takes Paul before the Sanhedrin, before the Jewish council. Uh, chapter 22, verse 30. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul, and he had him stand before them. And Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God and all good conscience to this day. And at this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. You liar. That's what he's saying. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. And those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? 
What does Paul realize in this moment? I'm not going to get a fair hearing. It's not going to happen. Paul replied, brothers, I didn't realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people, no matter how evil he may be sometimes. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, remember these are different sorts of religious leaders in Jerusalem. And if you remember, Jesus brings this out in the Gospels. The Sadducees believe there is no resurrection. The Pharisees believe there is a resurrection. So what does Paul say in the midst of this? My brothers, I am a Pharisee, common ground, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. He's like, okay, what is the big argument and debate between these two? And then how do I throw a lighted match into the midst of that? Because what will happen if Paul does that? He's not going to get a fair hearing, but they'll be so distracted with how angry they are at each other that they'll forget to be angry at Paul. So for truth-tellers, in hostile contexts, use the truth with shrewdness. I'm not going to get a fair hearing, so let's make this so it's not about me anymore. That's what he does. Hostile contexts, use the truth with shrewdness. Make friends, make an ally, or you'll get someone to fight for you, not with a lie, but with the truth. For truth hearers in this passage, well, there are no truth hearers. And maybe that's something we need to take away as well sometimes. Uh, when I was in college, uh, I took a mission trip to Salt Lake City for a week. Uh, to Utah, more generally, actually. It was a fascinating trip. We visited uh, Colorado City, one of the polygamous colonies uh, out there. You were told uh, you are here to listen, learn, and observe. You are not here to say anything because there are people patrolling here with guns, and we don't want them pointed at us. We went uh, to St. George, Utah, and it's just a whole different culture out there for spring break. But the important thing is when we got to Salt Lake City, uh, we did what I thought was just like, it, this appeals to my sense of humor so much. We did door-to-door -door evangelism with the Mormons. Door-to-door, -door, knock on the door. Hey, we want to tell you about Jesus. So, like every door we knocked on, I just got a little jolt of pleasure from that. And it was, it was a blast. We met so many people. We had so many good conversations. Uh, it was an incredible experience. Uh, then one day, we went to the temple in Salt Lake City. We wanted to tell people about Jesus at the temple and just see this and learn as well. And we came, we ran into some of the Mormon elders there. And, uh, you know, we started talking, the things that we'd learned, the things that we'd seen, and we realized we're never going to make any progress here. Uh, and I, I don't mean this in a, like, you know, we're so smart and truth-sensitive and these people are not. I just mean, you know, a Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, you know, the near Christian folks, you're going to have a hard time convincing me as well. There are places where our goal is not to change people's minds in the moment. But our goal is to be present and see what God does. That was one of those moments. This is what we're about. This is what we're for. We shook hands and we walked away. That was enough. Sometimes there is no opportunity for the truth to be heard in the places that we go, at least not in that moment. We still tell the truth. 
with as much winsomeness as we can muster, with as much kindness and consideration and compassion as we can give. Because finally, I think this passage reminds us that for truth-tellers, God's plan is bigger than the moment. That's what we get out of the very last verse in this section we're looking at today. Uh, Paul begins the, you know, he lights the dynamite, lights the powder keg, everyone's arguing, and, uh, uh, and it says there's a great uproar. <laughs> Some of the Pharisees said, we find nothing wrong with this man, even though they definitely did. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by then. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them and by force bring him into the barracks. Paul must have been discouraged. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul, I love you communicating the truth with these people that you've met today, with the Jews but I'm really sending you to Rome. Those are the people that I'm really wanting to reach with the truth in this particular circumstance. Paul could leave the ministry in Jerusalem to the Christians who were in Jerusalem because Paul, God was sending Paul the truth teller all the way out to Rome. God's plan is bigger than the moment, and I think that's good news because otherwise... We have a lot of moments where we say, well, that seemed like such a waste. And it's not true. God doesn't give up. God's not accidental. You know, uh, God's not taking the truth, closing his eyes and trying to find the dartboard, right? Surely there's somebody out there. God's the best dart player in the world, if I can stretch the metaphor. He's hitting the bullseye every time. 